Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Honky. We are officially back into our regular in-season schedule now, Redcasters, so expect us to record on Monday nights with a Tuesday release. That was a hot take. Wow, it was <laughs> burning. Mac, can you top that? Wait till you get a load of mine. <laughs> Wednesday nights are completely out of the question for recording because <laughs> I am coaching my daughter's three-on-three basketball team. Boom. Roasted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a boomer. Well, I'd just like to congratulate our good friends at uh, Baton Rouge and their uh, new defensive coordinator, Bo Pelini, <laughs> and your new record-breaking season that's already off to a great start. you got a lot more of those to look forward to, Tigers. Go, Bo. Is Bo spelling his name differently now that he's in the bayou? Well, he might be in a witness protection program now, so yes. <laughs> uh, also joining us tonight is Redcast Rob. Hey guys, good evening. I just want to let you know that I will not be transferring from the Redcast anytime soon as I'm afraid that the Fort Worth Star-Telegram might write an article raving about how great I'm going to be as an addition to any other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rob, we may get to um, our good friend J.D. Spillman uh, and his performance with TCU, but hey, one game, let's not be too critical on on J.D. Maybe it takes a little while to get uh, acclimated to the uh, Horned Frogs offense. I don't know. You know, Honky, let's talk college football. Uh, We really did feel like a college football Saturday. There was a lot of games out there, SEC playing. We had an upset. Mac, you had to enjoy watching uh, Oklahoma find a way to lose, right? Yeah, another horrific week for the Big 12. I mean, (laughs) my goodness. (laughs) They're doing it to themselves now. (laughs) If we were actually playing, the the amount of Manar we would heap on the Big 12 right now would just be unreal. I mean, your best team, your team with the best chance of going to playoff, just lost to a team that had already lost to a team not even in that conference. You know, it's like... A Sun Belt team, yeah. Yeah, a Sun Belt team. I'm just going to be petty until our season starts, so I'm just going to say this. It was fun for me to watch Oklahoma have a guy named like Bradley Riles or something like that. You might know him as Buki. Buki, <laughs> Buki who was on the uh, blocking side of the blocked punt against Oklahoma. And then, just a few plays later, got beat on that route to the end zone for the touchdown. So it was like... It was fun for me to watch. Plus, when I watched Spencer Radler on QB1, I found him to be less than pleasant as well. So I liked seeing them struggle. Yeah, this season of pettiness. Let's get this football playing, guys. I, I, I'm, this ain't a good look for me, but I can roll with it deep. I'm That's scratching surface. Well, speaking of the Big 12, uh, Boomer, I'm sure you caught the Texas Tech-Texas game, which might have been the very first game you ever saw. Is that right? Not Saturday's game, but originally right. way back when, yeah, the first game I ever actually attended in person was... Uh, you saw the first Texas Tech-Texas game? <laughs> I've been around for a while. That was back when that mustache was in style, buddy. <laughs> I'm not younger than I look. Uh, well, I think you get our gist, but a, a Boomer, that was one where Texas Tech had that one wrapped up and in classic Big 12 fashion. They let Texas come back with 15 points in the last two and a half minutes, and uh, the Longhorns win in overtime, right? Yeah, it it was kind of enjoyable in a couple of ways. First, seeing that, uh, you know, nobody in the Big 12 bothered to study defense when they had some downtime during the pandemic. So at least we've got that, you know, still holding true for everybody. And uh, considering some of the miserable ways we managed to lose to Texas Tech at times, it was kind of fun to see them screw up too. But then again, it would have been fun to see Texas, you know, blow it in uh, week two there. It it was 
Kind of a no-lose situation, I think, there for Nebraska fans. You can enjoy both teams losing and looking bad doing so. So that was great. And it's true. since we're picking on the Big 12, uh, let's talk about TCU, right, Rob? I mean, J.D. Spillman, you know, I, I do hope he does well down there, but it, it a very slow start for him. And we'll see if TCU can figure out how to better incorporate his skills into that offense. But uh, it's a, a slow start for J.D. in Fort Worth. Yeah, I, I actually felt kind of bad for the guy. I think he had, what, like three touches the entire day, two catches for 15 yards, one run for five or 16 yards or something like that. So 21 total yards. Yep. Um, not the best start that somebody could get um, with a new offense, but he didn't get a lot of playing time as it was either. So um, who knows what, what it is they're planning on doing with him there because, like you said, the season's young. Yeah, and a honky, um, this is a situation where there's a transfer – grad transfer situation, I suppose, uh, or at least immediate eligibility, and no spring ball, probably a disrupted fall camp for J.D. Um, tough to, to break into an offense that way, right? This is a difficult year for a lot of players that if you were new to a team, whether it's through transfer or JUCO or just a true freshman that was maybe counting on being here for the off season, well, as we've seen without spring balls and all that, I mean, this is a really hard season to get started with. So, you know, with JD, it's tough. I know one rush for five yards and two catches for sixteen. That's that's not what he was probably hoping for to go there. Heck, as far as I knew, he wasn't starting last week. So you'd like to think he probably thought he was going to a place to be a starter. Well, that didn't happen either. And I don't think that that needs to reflect. We don't need to go too deep into. Does that mean that we weren't very good that he could start here and not go over there? I don't know. It's, <laughs> I it's hadn't even thought about that. Well, but it's just it's a fair. And argument. we've had people bring that to us, and it's just too much right now to to try to go through it all. There's too many scenarios and too many factors that play into that. I think of another team that's in the Big Twelve, OU, and this is year four now of Lincoln Riley, and this is the point. You know, about this deep into it, this is when it starts to become your team. Mm-hmm. I don't know when you exactly do the cutoff. You know, when a coach starts to lose games, when do they start to say, well, now this is no longer Bob Stoops' team. This is no longer Urban Meyer's team at some point. When does it become the next guy's team? Well, Certainly right now it's three. starting to feel like it's Lincoln Riley's. Certainly, well, if, we, if we're using Frost as a comparison, we're yeah. not going to say this is any of Mike Riley's team this year. No. So if we're this deep in Lincoln Riley's career, then it's definitely his team. This year is so difficult. I'm, You know, we're not going to come crashing down on JD. I won't necessarily do with Oklahoma either. Everybody knows that the physicality of their defense was in question going into this year. And when you don't even have much of a spring or fall camp sure. to get prep for it, it's going to show. Kansas State is all – this is nothing new for K-State. They just go yeah. in and wreck shop. That's that's kind I, of their I, thing. Their fans get these thrills about every three years. I will say this, though, about K-State. Going into that game, I think they had seven guys missed because of COVID. They were late scratches. Saturday morning, yeah. That is all the more impressive. Think about wow. how much it nullifies home field advantage. It was like a ghost town. Those things matter. I mean, yes. it just felt like that was the first time I had really noticed watching a game where I feel like there's the energy isn't matching this play. You know, like there's a, there should be a moment here, and it didn't really feel like that because you didn't have the crowd swell of noise. You just had you know coaches yelling and players pointing and trying to apply that to Nebraska. And we're going to start off right away in the horseshoe, right? To apply that same mentality to that game, it's hard to guess right now. How is Nebraska Ohio State going to go when? 
the it's not going to feel like that in the stadium. It's going to be an empty stadium. Yeah. In fact, the Big Ten's even a little further on this where we're having no one in the stands. And the other thing is, I don't know because of how the Big Ten rules are, like could seven guys be called out for COVID the morning of, or would that completely eliminate oh, your team from even playing? Sounds like it'd be the end of the game. Depending on your roster, if you had 100 guys in your roster, that would easily surpass your 5%. I don't know if you guys heard the Notre Dame numbers. I mean, so they canceled that game. Notre Dame versus whoever, right? And they had end up 18 positive tests between players and staff. And then with the contact tracing that was going on, they only had 39 players that would have been eligible to play. That's where they were at last Saturday. That's why they didn't play, right? That's going old school there. Yeah, it, but when you don't have when you don't have daily testing, the contact tracing is so much harder. You eliminate so many more players. I mean, that's a real problem with only testing two or three times a week. Right. This is why Alabama voluntarily has gone to daily testing on their own, even though the SEC isn't requiring it, because Alabama's serious about playing football, and they mm-hmm. want to get their games in. That's 100% right, Dave. So with the daily testing, uh, you shouldn't have the contact tracing issues where if you're only testing twice or three times a week, you can mingle up amongst each other for 72 hours and one or two guys who happen to get COVID-19 can pass it to a much larger group. If you're getting tested every day, you shouldn't have as much of an issue. So I'm still positive that the daily testing is going to help avoid that issue at Nebraska and in, in the Big Ten. We'll see if it plays out or not. I don't know. It just seems like if you're testing daily, aside from like a, a big lapse in judgment by a group of players, right? it should absolutely be manageable. I mean, if we're if we're doing this correctly, yeah. and I, I assume they have a you know, like a system where they set up where they don't bring a bunch of guys in contact right away, so you can test them with spacing and, and no no risk of right. contaminating that way. So if that's happening, Dave, you're right, and I feel like this is something we've kind of been doing more regularly than maybe some other teams that weren't as serious about playing this year, in Minnesota, and uh, you know <laughs> trying to get you know ready to go, Wisconsin. <laughs> My point is. You're right, 100%. We're testing all the time. It seems like it'd be nothing but human error now at this point to kind of derail players, at least on our side of things. Certainly the other team could screw that up. Yeah, I know Boston College, I saw the stat they had like a week ago. They've done like 2,400 tests or something like that, and I think they've had two positives dating all the way back into the summer. So I took took a test today, also negative. Yeah, so Mac, tell us about that. But I ate lunch in uh, the parking lot right next to Memorial Stadium. So it was part of the community. <laughs> so I feel like my numbers should go towards the the total. So when we have to do well, a percentage I, of, I agree. But also you, because as we've said in the past, you work around COVID. You yes. were in the the health industry, yes. and you were showing us. You sent us a photo today of one of the the rapid tests yeah. and what they look like. It's crazy from from BD Beckton mm-hmm. Dickinson. We're from Columbus. So shout out to BD. Shout out to BD. Employing and funding my hometown. All <laughs> at you, city of power and progress. How is this uh, this new test? I guess. I've had the both, you know, like the regular shove it way up your sinus cavity. And this one was more knuckle deep, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, you swirl it around, dip it in there. It, it's just like an at-home pregnancy test. You'll see a faint line. and You'll see it almost immediately and it'll get darker. Or you'll see nothing. And you'll if see it that, gets darker, yeah, does that mean you're positive or negative? The control came back almost immediately, like nothing there was no te- there was no positive and it was fast i mean i probably knew in 5 officially you take 15 minutes to read it but it didn't change we had an employee here that did test positive and they tried that they did some of those tests in the clinic and the ones that showed up showed up right away i was in contact with them so it was possibility boom i'm not boom i can go to work 
Boom, the clinic stays open. Boom, college football continues. Big Ten, pay attention. <laughs> Holy Lord, we're actually doing work out there. You guys are playing games. We can make this happen. You guys are making money. Let's do it. <laughs> That's good to hear, Mac. That's exactly what we want to see with Nebraska football is that that can, you know, eliminate that doubt, right? So let's uh, keep on going around uh, the college football landscape and head over to the SEC. We already talked about uh, LSU a little bit. Um, that was quite the uh, showing by Mike Leach's offense against Bo Pelini's defense. You know, 44-34 victory for the Bulldogs, Hell State. Mike Leach, does he just have Bo's number or was Bo completely um, just being stubborn about his uh, defensive schemes versus the air raid? Well, I mean, it's so unlike Bo to give up massive yardage in a situation like this. But he did hold him to, what, nine rushing yards, so he did have that to hang his hat on. That's right. You know, Leach always has seemed to have something to beat, you know, bow teams. He beat them twice. Granted, uh, one of the games, they didn't put up a ton of yardage, but they were still able to do enough to win. That was, what, our 2010 season when our offense was just dismal. But uh, It was awful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, LSU had its struggles, too. I mean, they, how many, did they have one defensive starter back, I think, from last year's team? That's I mean, that's going to be a challenge for everybody. But then again, you can look at the same way with, you know, Mississippi State. You're bringing in a new coach, learning a completely new system from anything they've handled before. And I mean, how much prep time do they have with this weird offseason to, you know, study and learn to do things? With a transfer quarterback. Yeah, just watching the game, it just seemed like maybe it was stubbornness or maybe it was just LSU didn't really have confidence in the personnel to do much else. But you know, their cornerbacks were just kind of sitting up close to the line and letting, you know, those patented Mike Leach crossing patterns and deep routes go. And, well, if you're going to let him keep doing that, keep doing it. So I thought that was interesting. And then I guess I'm not super familiar with Mississippi State's defense, but did they run like a 3-3-5 or something like that? I was watching that during the game, and it just kind of seemed to be a different formation. Does anyone know much about that? That seems traditional for Leach. I, I know he's run oh, something true. like that at Tech and probably at Washington State as well. Because I was kind of surprised at that. Their defense seemed to do reasonably well, especially in the first half against you know LSU. They really kind of yeah. kept the Tigers down. So it was it was a fun game to watch, and I always enjoy watching upsets in the SEC. And I don't yeah. even know if this is an upset. I was just thinking. I just I, I have, is this more of a result of them I playing don't, each other? I don't know if I've said this on a show and if I didn't then I probably you know now I'm trying to sound like I'm smarter than I was but all offseason I've thought with LSU like this is not LSU from a year ago they have lost Mm. everything from coaches and coordinators to obviously Burrow I mean they are starting over essentially from scratch and the thing that's weird about Orgeron and it's the thing you love about him and, and at the same time probably LSU fans hate about him right now he did nothing to squash any hype of LSU this offseason. He mm-hmm. boosted that defense. He talked about how Bo came in here and this is going to, you know, we're going to be better than we were a year ago. Wow. There's enough pressure. And, and as Nebraska fans, we have lived through dynasties. We know what it's well, like the, to have the 40-somethings great. have lived through dynasties. Okay, so fine. Us on this show, yeah. we know what it's like to win national titles and what the expectations are the next year. And you don't need to do anything to boost expectations. And I I would just say Ordron didn't seem to do anything to try to cut any of the, the expectations. That's all I'll say. Well, anyone who pays attention to college football, though, would know. I mean, they lost 30 players off of last year's roster. 30 players. I mean, that's almost an entire NFL roster. But that's not that new for LSU. I mean, LSU puts players in every year. Les Miles dealt with that all the time. This is going to be the whole college football season, boys. It's going to be a really weird year. And that gives me hope for our upcoming season. But it's going to be... You know, like people are like, oh, if the Big Ten only gets to play nine or eight games, is that going to be enough games to be undefeated for Ohio State? I don't know how many undefeated teams I expect this year, guys. Mm. I think it's going to shake out pretty quick. 
No, that's a really good point, Mac. That could happen across the board. You're going to have to play quality teams for the most part, every week. Sure. And without buys a lot of times, too. That's interesting. I, I mean, the conversation here doesn't seem like we are laying the, the blame at the foot of Bo Pelini, per se, um, but maybe just LSU in general is just not the same team, which I think is probably could be a fair criticism. For sure. Um, I, one of the interesting things I listened to today, it was a, uh, I think it was a CBS uh, podcast, uh, Barton Simmons and those guys. Danny Cannell's on it now. And uh, they were talking about this game, and they were a little harder on Bo than we were. And they actually went and looked up the uh, Apple Cup results. Mike Leach went 0-6 versus Chris Peterson in the Apple Cup. Never scored more than 20 points versus Chris Peterson-led uh, teams. And his uh, coach, who's now the, is the Washington coach, uh, Jimmy Lake, um, was the D.C. there. And they're like, did Bo not go look at that? Because obviously... Chris Peterson knows how to stop Mike Leach. I just thought that was really, really interesting. Well, how could he have predicted Leach was going to pass in this game? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess we'll see how the uh, SEC uh, plays out this year. But LSU could be in for a, a rough year, especially for a defending national champion. A few other SEC results. Georgia struggled early against Arkansas, which is amazing. But they, they pulled away. Quarterback issues there with UGA. And we'll see if JT Daniels potentially can fix that. Um, then Florida looked pretty darn good, especially on the offensive side of the ball versus Ole Miss. I thought Ole Miss would be able to hang a little bit closer to him on that one. And uh, Kyle Trask and, and that Florida offense uh, clicked pretty well. So we'll, we'll see what the East looks like here in the next couple of weeks. But uh, maybe Florida could be the real deal. Yeah, I had the distinct pleasure of watching the Tennessee-South Carolina game the other night. Um, I might have had a couple bucks riding on that with the with the point spread, which was not covered, by the way. But one of the things the announcers were talking about, and it was funny because basically what they were trying to say is, wow, the season will be interesting now that the SEC has to play actual Power 5 teams all season long. And they were trying to spin it as a positive, like, yeah, these teams are really running through the gauntlet this year. Of course. And, <laughs> and seriously, I spit my whiskey right back into my glass when I heard him say that. Cause I'm thinking to myself, like, my Lord, you have to be kidding me. So basically they're doing what every other power five conference has been doing for years. And they're not padding some FCS team there in week 11. Yep. That's right. Good for them. Congratulations, SEC. You've done it. Yeah. I, I hear you, Rob. Um, you know, other Southern schools like to pad with the uh, non-con easy games. ACC is another one of those. Clubson's already played Citadel, for example. ACC team that did not have an easy week was Florida State, uh, where their coach, Mike Norvell, is in quarantine, not even at the stadium, and uh, they go and lose to their rival, uh, arch nemesis Miami, 52-10. to uh, Boomer, how bad is the Seminole Nation right now? I mean, they, they're just, it's awful. Well, they're not good, Dave. I, I don't think it's any way to put it. I mean, I think Norvell was probably in the best place there, being as far away from that as possible. But, geez, they're just – you would think that, you know, if there's a program that should be able to get talent fairly easily, you know, Florida State should be one of those. I mean, there's tons of people there, a lot of talent nearby. Gosh, they just look awful as a program. They don't really seem to have any offensive identity or have any idea what they want to do. They're just in a bad spot. You know, I was thinking that watching that game. When is the last time that game had both teams good and meant something? I mean, that oh, game it's been almost a, twenty years. I would yeah, say. Yeah, that used to be a huge game every season. You know, often decided who was going to a national title game. But 
geez, that game hasn't been relevant for a long time. They still have talent on that team. Even, I mean, there's players that were recruited by Jimbo that are probably still on that team, for goodness sakes. Uh, but maybe that's the problem, right? This is their third head coach in four years, I believe, right? Uh, maybe all the transition changeover. There's no consistency here right now uh, amongst our coaching staff. Is it just something that's going to take time for Florida State, or is there something fundamentally wrong right now with that program? Yeah, I mean, Mac and I were talking about that a little bit just on mute here about how long Bowden had been there. So from basically the late 70s, and he was there all the way through the 80s, played us four times in Lincoln, mm-hmm. went two and two against us in Lincoln and, and said that that was a thing that helped build the Seminoles up to the yeah. program that they became. He highlighted the Nebraska series there. But he was with them, you know, for basically almost about 30 years, and they were at, at a very high level. They brought in Jimbo Fisher. He was there for a year or two under Bowden to kind of maybe help with that transition. Did the coach and waiting thing, and it actually seemed to work in that case. Until Win another title. wrong, but yeah. yeah and, but then when he leaves, now here you've gone through multiple coaches now in a three- or four-year span – Taggart was hired the same year Frost was hired here. It's early. I mean, this has not been a good start at all for Norvell. Obviously, at Florida State, across the board, it wasn't a good offseason for him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's – doesn't seem like this season's going to be disastrous well, for him. And, and here's my thing. Is Florida State that team that got propped up for one coach's really good run? I, I, I'll give Jimbo Fisher the – but I, I would still call that maybe a little aftermath of what – Bowden did. Sure. Now, are they starting to come back to their natural resting place? Because let, there's there's Florida, who's part of the SEC, so they will always matter. Miami has that that kind of little bit it factor to it that they put out a ton of pros all the time, and they've just got this attitude to them. But to me, I feel like UCF could just as easily be Florida State. You know, I really do. And if it's a momentum thing and they could get in a better conference, I just – there's no reason – for Florida State to not do this well and other teams in their in their own state doing that much better. And they can't keep a coach and there just seems to be very little interest. I just feel like the Seminole brand isn't maybe as strong as we thought it was, but mostly they had a really good coach for a lot of years and that built that, that gave them some time. But I don't know that they are necessarily underperforming. I really don't. You know, maybe another part of the Florida State issue is, to Max's point here is they got maybe a little complacent with Bowden and then also with Jimbo. One of the reasons Jimbo wanted to leave was that he didn't feel like he was getting enough support from that administration from a facility standpoint to keep up with the other Florida schools. And he got frustrated about not getting those things that he felt he needed to run a, a top flight program. And, and he took off when A&M mm-hmm. gave him a, you know, a golden chair, essentially, right? That's a smart move. <laughs> it's a, it's a, no, seriously, it's a smart yeah. move. If you don't think you're the leadership of your university is going to put the what you need to be a successful football program, it is far too competitive to be a head coach right now to be messing with that stuff. Sure. You know who's always going to put that time in? Texas schools. Go to A&M. They're not sure. going to mess around with that. Plus a $75 million contract makes it pretty easy, too. Isn't it? That's because they're serious. Yeah. And now, scoring explosion. The Offensive Breakdown. All right, I think that's enough uh, college football talk uh, for one red cast. Let's focus on the Huskers, Honk. Uh, so we'll go position by position here and break down uh, what we expect out of the Husker offense. And uh, it's my understanding you got Twitter polls out right now for each one of the positions. So uh, let's start with uh, QB. Yeah, so uh, thank you again, Redcasters, all of you that came out and, and helped us out with some of these uh, 
Twitter polls, about a thousand responses total. First one was about the QBs, and it was that NU combined to complete 60% of its passes last season. Will that number go up or down in 2020? 82.7% said that NU is going to complete more than 60%. 17.3% said less. So, I mean, that's a lot of people saying that we're going to improve. And 60%, it was exactly 60%, by the way, last year for the mm. for all the QBs combined. You know, people are expecting improvement there. We've talked about with, mm-hmm. with uh, Martinez, so much of the season is going to be on his shoulders improving or not. Is he going to have you know, sure. that bounce back year, or is he going to continue that sophomore slump? If we're completing more than 60%, if it's getting 65 70%, what does that mean towards the season? First off, I'd, I'd like to mention the people who, the 17.3% that said less than 60%, I don't want to watch a game with you. That just sound you just sound like like zero fun. Right? Less than sixty, easily, eh, whatever. So if we're over sixty percent, I honestly I feel like sixty percent is like your baseline. It actually needs to be closer to 68 percent is is when this offense is clicking. And I don't feel like that's unreasonable by any stretch. I, I I know we've said this a lot on this podcast about high snaps and lack of rhythm and not having a, a proven running back, but but. Like it or not, though, all those things play a factor into that. All, especially when you're playing a high tempo offense, where where timing is so crucial to that, and in your reads and making the defense believe your reads. So yeah, absolutely, it's going to go up. It, it'll be a, I would say, like I said, to be successful in this offense, sixty five to sixty eight percent minimum for passing. That's seven wins. Wow, that'd be uh, even in a nine game schedule. Seven wins, Dave. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, Honky, I mean, one of the criticisms of of Adrian Martinez, especially last year, was his accuracy, Mm -hmm. right? And the question is, can he, you know, return to form to his his freshman year? And just in general, I mean, in the Frost offense, 65% really is that almost like minimum, and you really want to get uh, above that. I think it was pro football focus had... Adrian ranked 129th out of 130 quarterbacks in FBS, which is just ludicrous. Uh, but the basis of that was they're just, they just don't think he has enough accuracy for the position, as I think it was written. And that, that was below Noah Vedral, who had mm-hmm. obviously far less uh, inventory to, to examine. Uh, Tristan Jebbia, um, Patrick O'Brien. I mean, like, just insane to be that low. And maybe they're not looking at his running ability either. Maybe it was just purely their his pro potential. I don't know. But uh, you think Adrian's got it in him, right? I mean, he's had a lot of time here to work on this. He's also being pushed by Luke McCaffrey. When the pads get strapped on here in a couple of days, on September 30th, even though we think Adrian's going to win, Luke is going to push him the entire way, right? Yeah, well, I have no doubt he will. But, yeah, to your point, that one is it. What did you say? Pro football focus? Is that what PFF.com is? I think so, yeah. That article is just the dumbest thing I read, and that was back in August. And yeah, it had three former Huskers that were well ranked ahead of him. Well, the only guy that wasn't ranked ahead of him was Jack Zergodius at UConn. Um, come on. Who's not playing this year. Yeah. I think that was one of those things. They they finished the list, and the article was about to go to print, and they realized they left him out, and we're not re-ranking <laughs> this. So just stuff him in there quick, where no one will notice. Yeah, I read that. I'm like, you can be the biggest... Martinez hater out there. Serious, you're going to rank yeah, him. This is this is when analytics takes a real big one on the chin because it's like, no, he's not. He's not the last ranked quarterback in the nation. No, he's not. That's easy to say. You could put him at the last in the Big Ten, 
And that still isn't like yeah. second last. That's just it's, a stupid, stupid number. Yeah. But I had a question for you guys. You're like, what statistic do you think will be more of an indication of our offensive efficiency or or effectiveness or success? Completion percentage by we'll just say the quarterback position, our run pass ratio, or yards per carry. I'm just going back and looking at some of the previous stats from like 2018 compared to 2019, especially with Adrian, because uh, the numbers are just so different in there. And um, as we found out later, Adrian had sol- shoulder surgery. So, um, you know, that might have played a factor into what it was. And to answer your question, Mac, I don't know that it's any of the things that you said. I think it's just going to be yards per play will be the the right stat. And I say that only because so many of the passing plays that are designed in the Frost offense are actually running plays that require a throw, a short throw, a nice little dink and dunk. And from there, it's going to actually determine where it is. I will not use the turn bubble screen because <laughs> oh my god if i hear that again but i mean it, there's a lot of uh, dare i say almost like a west coast offense from a from a pro perspective in that so i mean a lot of the run plays that we have are passes technically but those have to be completed those have to go for four or five six yards at a play that's really where it's going to be dave you're an analytics guy you like to talk about these kind of numbers and and crunching <laughs> them and seeing what they might indicate Maybe it's outside of what I already asked, but when you look at when you look at offensive efficiency and you look at a team as an indication of success of what you're doing, what do you look at? Yeah, uh, I'm a yards per point guy, not yards per play. Oh, um, Dave, so, coming in. I, I knew I threw it to the right guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yards per point is a Phil Steele uh, metric, uh, which indicates efficiency on the offensive side of the of the ball, right? And so if you're scoring a lot of points with less yards uh, related to that, that means you're getting easy easy scores. You're also playing with a shorter field. You're getting turnovers. You're getting special teams points. You're playing a complete game, right? And, and vice versa if your defense is creating a, a difficult situation for your opponent. So in that vein, Mac, to answer your question, I would say the uh, yards per rush, right? If, if we're carrying the ball for six, seven, eight yards a pop, um, that's going to be an efficient offense. So that's going to open up big plays down the field. The whole playbook book would be wide open for Frost at that point. So I would say how many yards we're rushing uh, per carry would be the critical stat that you gave. I, I 100% agree because it's the most real stat on there, right? Because a completion percentage can be manipulated by screens, right? And run-pass ratio is, is just a ratio. It doesn't even indicate really anything. But – Yards per rush takes effort, takes execution, and it takes uh, a commitment to doing something. I 100% agree, and it just proves my point that Honky's wrong about the run-pass ratio. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for, Mac. Hey, if we're getting seven yards a rush, then our run-pass ratio better be pretty heavy on the run. But speaking of rushing, we should probably talk about running backs then, right? Absolutely. Let's uh, look into that running back room, and obviously it's led by – Diedrich Mills, but we're looking to see to have a second, third, or fourth option there that's not named Wandell Robinson, right? So, Honky, I mean, what are you looking for out of this running back crew this year? Well, you know, we asked a question, Dave, on Twitter today about the running back, about Diedrich Mills, and it was the same question that Derek Peterson asked you and I last week on the Varsity Club podcast, which, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the Varsity Club podcast last week, 
Um, How could I access that? <laughs> Tell me more. Go to hailvarsity.com or go to Google Play or you know any of your favorite ones. But um, anywho, uh, he asked us, do you think Dedrick Mills is going to hit 1,000 yards or not? And again, remember, you have to change your thinking here. There, there's not 12 games. It's an eight-game season plus one, so nine games. We asked that question here, and we had 58% of people say, yes, they think Mills will top 1,000. Um, 42% said no. He rushes for less than 1,000. Dave, you said no. You thought he would just be under. I said yes because I'm honky, and I'm going to say yes anytime when mm. a stat or anything mm. comes up, and I'm always going to think that we're going to get over it, right? But that number, I don't know if that number, how important that number is this year compared to a normal year. Normally, we think of 1,000 as this, this important stat. But I do think that Mills needs to be the workhorse Early and often. Mac, you and I talked about it a week mm-hmm. ago. I said, should he have 50 rushes in the first two games in total? And you were kind of thinking a little bit lower than that. And me, I'm like, go for it. And I thought Dave came in with a great point about we need to think differently this year. We don't have 12 games and 13 games with the bowl game. With eight games, man, let's play them. Yeah. I'm not saying Trey Bryan a guy. I'm just saying, right. you know, <laughs> go out there and give him the, the amount of carries that's appropriate and let's utilize him. If he's getting 11 yards a carry like he did against Wisconsin, let's not stop giving it to him. Well, but, but the distinction needs to be made in a traditional year. Do I think Dedrick Mills is a 1,000-yard back? Yes. Does he get it this year? Maybe not. But that doesn't mean he's not of that caliber. A 1,000-yard back in the Big Ten is something, you know. And he's absolutely got that ability. Mac, in a, a 12-game season to get a thousand yards you probably need what around 75 80 yards a game something like that yeah and i and i feel like he's easily that i mean i I would be shocked if he was less than that in nine games you know you look at maybe 750 something like that you know so Mm -hmm. is mills a 750 guy this year is the question when you look at what they did in 2019 his stats were different the second half versus the first half if he basically mimics what he did the last four to five six games of the season he's a thousand yard rusher even this year and that was, again, against some very good competition. Wisconsin, he did things against Wisconsin that teams don't do. And that's that's the thing that's stuck in my mind. We need to utilize him between the tackles, and he needs to be a workhorse, you know, if he gets, pounded if, out. If he has out. 160 by the end of two games, I, he will get 1,000 yards. Barring injury, he'll get it. Sure. Because he started out so slow last year. If he comes in, that's my only concern with Dedrick Mills is he's such a turn and go, hard nosed runner. He lacked the uh, the nuances of, of finding soft spots and run through smoke, like we always say. Ryan held, but at the end of the year, he was yeah. absolutely doing. It. If he comes next year, this year, and does that, boom. Dave, I'm going to hand this to you, but here I, I have a trivia question for you: Who is the leading rusher in terms of number of runs on the team last year by one extra carry? Adrian. Adrian, you're right. Adrian had one more carry than than, uh, Mills. And that's the thing. At the end of the day, this year, the workhorse means he's the leading rusher and it's not even close. He needs to get the carries. We need to feed that guy. He's going to get 1,000 yards, in my opinion, because he can handle that and he's going to be between the tackles. We need the style of offense that runs between the tackles. Absolutely. I mean, and we need to be able to uh, control the ball when needed Mm -hmm. and get those first downs on third and short, you know. Yep. So let me ask a real question. It's hypothetical to Boomer or Rob to bring him in here. Let's say Mills has a, a big breakout game. Mills runs for 200 yards. What game is that? Boomer. 
It would probably be Illinois. I, I wanted to say Hydrox in you with Northwestern, but they're always scrappy, so I don't think it's going to be them. Yeah, we're going to go with Illinois. I think he could have a huge game against them. He should, anyway. Yep. So. Rob? Yeah, he took it from me because I'm looking at the schedule, and man, they've got the gauntlet this year, don't they? Um, no Rutgers, no Maryland. Um, yeah, it's going to have to be Illinois because, you know, Northwestern, like Honky likes to say, it's going to be a 5-2 to two game. <laughs> It's true. Yeah, a couple of couple of safeties and a field goal. So, hockey. What are your thoughts? Again, I don't think you can look at the schedule and and pick a team because if you'd have done that a year ago, you never would have p- predicted Wisconsin. You never would right. have said, "Oh, that's the game he's going to run for eleven yards carry on." At the end of the day, it doesn't even matter who the opponent is. And I know that sounds stupid, but I don't care. I saw us started to run the ball effectively in our third drive last year against Ohio State in the I formation drive. We were running it at him. We were going between the tackles against him. So at the end of the day, it's not even about who the opponent is. It's about are we willing to stick to something? I think we can run the ball in between the tackles against virtually anybody on this schedule right now. So are we going to do that, do you think, against Ohio State? And well, that's the, there's the question. And that's what Greg Austin, who got elevated to run game coordinator, and that's when one of the things I think with bringing in Lubick as the, the actual offensive coordinator who I think, you know, what we're going to do with receivers blocking and tight ends blocking, and we're going to have a different emphasis on some things than what we've done even in the last two years. If something's working, my question to you guys would be, if you have somebody going for 11 yards a carry for 17 carries for 188 yards against Wisconsin, why don't you continue doing that? That would be my question. That's just what they're expecting us to do. And so, there is an element of adjusting to it and trying to yeah, do the, the opposite. This is what we do best, then let's be best at doing this. All right. Well, uh, anything else in the running back room? Mac, any uh, names there that you're expecting to pop out to support Mills in this effort? Dave, I'd love to sound like a genius right now, but it is a complete question mark in that room. Well, who's, I, I, who's I, number I, two? Ramir Johnson Ramir Johnson is, is the first four games. Ramir Johnson. Okay. And after that, it, this year is going to be so weird, guys. We're going to throw the kitchen sink at him. It'll, it'll just depend. You know, they, who's to say that, that Diedrich Mills doesn't get dinged up in the first two or three series? I'm like, like it's so funny. We're, all we're talking about is playing games and getting to the games. Like, nothing could happen to any player other yeah. than COVID. But, but the reality <laughs> is we haven't even put pads on yet. We don't know who we're going to even have starting. Because legitimate injuries, like a, a torn ACL – or a broken collarbone, or mm-hmm. you know, like things that happen when full-size human beings hit each other at a rate of speed. So yes, uh, without without any injuries, because football is free of injuries. And, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Ramir Johnson to start off with. But those freshmen are coming in so fast and so hot. How much would you love to have a crystal ball last year to not redshirt anybody? Because this year would have been free of free of eligibility. Oh, wow. I mean, we would have won two or three more games last year if we wouldn't redshirt Ramir or McCaffrey. Could have won the West. Uh, Dave. Done. <laughs> Thank you. Dave. I mean, I think the perfect player to talk about right now to transition to the next position group, which is wide receiver, is Wandell. Because Wandell plays a little bit of both, right? This is what that whole uh, Duckar or Huskar, as we Huskar call it. Huskar is the, the Huskar, You're special. kind of a running back. You're kind of a receiver and all hey, that. Triple B printing. Huskar shirts, that's your next big hit. Triple B, there you go, baby. Um, Dave, as we're still talking about running backs, right as we move into the to the wide receiver group, how much do you think Wandell's going to be uh, playing at the running back spot this year? He'll get some snaps back there, but I think it's going to be far more limited. I think that's at least what the plan is, mm-hmm. um, because we need him almost more in the wide receiver spot, I, I would guess. 
but I'm, I'm going to guess maybe he might get four or five carries a game still, you know, that might be a little high actually, but you know, I mean, he might have one game where he gets featured a little bit more back there and another game where he's, you know, almost non-existent. Do you see a game where maybe he gets double digit carries, which happened a couple times, I think last year for him. Do you see that even happening one time this year? Just trying to figure out like how his workload changes from freshman to sophomore year. I don't think that would be a game plan where they're like, yeah, we're going to give Wandell 12 carries today, but does it happen? Yeah, it, it might happen at least mm-hmm. in a game. But, you know, I mean, it's going to be f- far less frequent than it happened last year. It would have to be like a ridiculously well-working play like that we just kind of keep going to because they haven't sure. figured out a way to defend it. Because, yeah, if, sure, if, if we get to 12 carries with Wandell at any point in this game, I'm going to go ahead and predict we lose that game. Oh, wow. I just don't think that's a good recipe. Mac and Honky, so we're transitioning to wide receivers, right? And I'll let, mm-hmm. let Honky do the Twitter poll here. But I've seen depth charts where Wandell is obviously number one in the house car. And then I've seen someone like Chris Hickman listed as his backup. Completely different body type. Yeah. Um, and you don't imagine Chris Hickman lining up in the backfield as a running back. So how do you see that? I mean, Maybe as an indication of how the position is, is evolving to be more wide receiver focused, but I don't know. Explain that to me, I guess. That's, That's a good a question. Really good question, Dave, because <laughs> I've thought about that too, because you're right. You've got two ends of the spectrum at that same position, right? And they're, and they're both at the same time, complete hybrids, right? One is a total running back mm-hmm. wide receiver. One is a total tight end wide receiver. And yet they're kind of both playing this sort of fusion role. So maybe it becomes a down and distance. Maybe it becomes a situational thing. But it's a fantastic conflict to put the defense in, potentially, if you've got them in the right personnel group. So And that's kind of how I look at it. I'm like, I, I feel like it's, it's a mismatch kind of offense in terms of like, we're going to try to put you in the most conflict, right? That's, that's my basic, most basic understanding of the spread is, is, is stretch them out and put make defenses make a choice and conflict and hopefully guess it wrong. I think it's an outstanding question, Dave. I'll turn it back to you and ask if you're a defensive coordinator and you have two straight plays and one of them, Wandell is on the field and the next one, Chris Hickman's on the field and they're literally in the same position. Who do you want? What position do you want? And what, what kind of defense do you want to get into to defend that? That's a bit of a mind mind blow right there, right? Because that's yeah. a six six versus five nine, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, feels like it's a completely different player. Um, what if they're on the same the field at the same time, right? I I don't know. Don't you feel like the, the position in the field too matters? Like if you have like if you're you know between the twenties, maybe a Wandell, but in the inside the red zone, maybe Hickman's more of a mismatch. It's so dependent. Here's one of the things that really worries me about all of this and what you guys are talking about with some of these position players that are hybrids, right? Tight end, running back, running back, wide receiver. This is an offense that has had a really hard time finding its identity for the last couple of years. Now we're in year three of this offense. How much do we really want to see these guys getting cute with these plays? Like, you know, trying to make the other team guess. Like, And I think... Uh, Mac actually made a great point, and I've heard Mark Schlereth say it here. Um, he's an offensive lineman for the Broncos and the Redskins Super Bowl winning. And he said, look, when we lined up against teams, I would 
literally tell the defensive guys on the other side of the ball, we're running it and we're running it right at you. And you know what they would do? They would run it and they would get the yardage and they would get the touchdown. And, and that's the kind of offense I would rather see. I just want to see a consistency in the offense where they find themselves, they identify themselves, and they're not going to worry about all kinds of weird trick plays and make other teams worry about what it is they're going to well, be Well, Rob, that honestly, not the Scott Frost offense. So <laughs> and, I'll just, and, I'll just and, be and flat out honest that. with you. I mean, like, if, if you look at, at Oregon, et cetera, it's not that you can't impose your will on, on somebody. I, I want to make sure that's very clear. Honky would be emphatic that that's actually can be a part of the offense as well. It is combining Oregon speed and Husker power, but it, it is about creating conflict, right? Mismatches yeah. is a part of this offense, and it will continue to be so. The challenge I have here, and you're not wrong, Dave, at all with what you just said. The challenge I have is that the offense that Rob just said is the 1994 Nebraska offense. Literally, where Zach Weger and those guys would tell the defenses where we're running, and we're just going to run right at them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Here's my challenge. And this is – I'm literally – Calling out and essentially, I'm calling out it's a Frost. And, for the rest of us. Well, I'm Go calling ahead. out Frost and and, and Lubick and 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 our run game coordinator Austin. Is that if that's working, if the game between the tackles is working the way it was against Wisconsin a year ago, and the way that we can run the ball, if it is, let's not get cute. Stick with that. Our best game, our run game, can work between the tackles. It absolutely can. Well, but. But can we stick with? But can it, we stick with that if it is working? But it always kind of ends up being, what's your identity, right? Is 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 your yeah. identity the thing that is? If we need three yards, we can hang our hat on this play, this formation, this this bunching, whatever, and get three yards. And how do we get it? Is it through the air or through the ground? Or is our identity it? Whatever you give us, we have an adjustment to make within that play to beat you because that might not look physical. And it might not always work, but it might be your identity. And my my issue has been almost since soulish. It's like I feel like the lack of an identity, like the one thing you hang your hat on, Dave, like you said, like the one thing is like, can we do this? I'm like, if this is our best effort, if this is our best play, it's going to take your best effort and your best defense All to right. beat it. I'm a 100% believer in this. You've got to have that. You've got to have that. That's a great point. When it's third and three, or third and four, or five even, a, a situation where you could throw it or run it doesn't really matter. It's not really a, a clearly defined, you know, down and distance. What is Nebraska's best play? What do you think Nebraska's best play is? And it may differ from the coaches. I'll go around the room. I'll start with you, Mac. It's third and five. What are we running with the team that we have this year with the offensive line, the quarterback, yeah. and the running back, and the, re- yeah, yeah, yeah. the receivers we have? What are you running this year? As far as like the, your your skill set, it's got to be Mills. You want whoever our best tight end is this year, and I I assume it's stole, but like let's say yeah, there's Volkolek let's say Volkolek or whatever, whoever this whoever the best tight end is out there, or no, Omar Manning, a guy who's a who's a size mismatch, uh, a Wandell Robinson, a guy who's a quick a quickness mismatch, a guy like Dedrick Mills who runs for power, has speed, and he was you know who's a you know a north south kind of guy. Right, and then from that, and a quarterback who's mobile—that could be McCaffrey, that could be Adrian. Sure, I'm just painting a perfect picture. By the way, guys, we're going to get this first down. I'll we're getting you. the first I'll, down. I'll tell you that right now. Anyway, um, 
some kind of zone action read from the shotgun because you have to be who you are because there's no way you're going to tell me uh, in this particular situation we're going to get under center. Yeah, that's yeah. not who we are. So Correct. let's be who we are. We're on. We are in the shotgun formation. It's a zone read, but the action has to be some kind of quarterback motion to his strong side and have a drag route with a, a mismatch tight end and have a tall guy who's going. A little bit beyond that, and then maybe somebody like a Wandell Dragon even deeper, you know, in that third level there. That's that's going to be your ideal play, and it's either based on how the defense does or defense lines up. You hand it to Mills, who's got enough strength and power to get it, or you hand it to or you get it to Stoll, who's taller, or Volkolek, or whoever. You know, like that's that's how it's got to be. We've got to be true to our own offensive philosophies and mismatch. Everybody along the way. And the, the, the thing is, if it's if this offense is clicking the way it should be, it could be run or pass. You call well, based on what the defense What you're basically like. doing is you're giving me an RPO, and I think that's a totally fair answer right there. I'd like to say it the longer way. <laughs> Rob, <laughs> Rob, what are you running on that third and five? Swing pass to Wandale. Huh? Okay. It sounds like a bubble screen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's either that or they don't have Hunter Renfro, so you can't go over the middle with that one. <laughs> okay, Boomer, what are you running? There's a couple approaches here. Uh, first off, if, like you said earlier, Honky, if those runs up the middle are working, the Dedrick Mills, if we've got that established and showing it's working, go to it again. You know, like you saw with Wisconsin, mm-hmm. if they couldn't stop us, do it. You know, that's that kind of imposing our will on a team. If it's working, go with it. Uh, and the other the other option that I would like to see in those kind of short plays, and this is uh, one of two stats that you guys failed to mention that are going to be critical for showing offensive success this year, is tight end. That's one of those things we've heard about the Scott Frost offense, how the tight ends are going to be involved, and we really haven't done that for two seasons. So if they're available now, let's uh, make that happen. That's Those are your two go-to plays in third and short. All right, Dave. Well, if um, history tells us anything... It's probably Adrian running out of the shotgun. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could say that's an R- RPO, but I mean, that was our most effective short yardage play uh, last year. So I'd go with that. I mean, if you want to make it a more exciting answer, I would. I would argue that another good alternative there, if we look back to 2018, would probably be Adrian throwing to someone like Omar or Betts in a quick slant, kind of like Stanley Morgan was always a, an a go-to in that type of situation. So that'd be an alternative. Everything starts with that quarterback. And the quarterback play, the reason we don't have a drop-back guy that's just going to be a statue in the pocket is because we want that quarterback putting stress on the defense. And so any one of our quarterbacks can do that now. I know Martinez was ranked 129th out of 130, whatever. But you know what? This guy... Dynamite ranking job, by the way. <laughs> but this Lord. guy is is meant to put stress on defenses with his feet and his arm, both, being that dual threat, you're going to utilize both sides of that on any of those third and, third and short uh, distances that we've talked about. Of those things we've already talked about, what's your biggest fear or concern of this offense to do it? Where do you feel like, okay, I'm optimistic about these positions, but I'm, but what's realistic? Like, is it realistic to, to count on the tight ends when we've never seen him? Is it realistic to count on an Omar Manning when, yes, he's the top, you know, like top two Juco prospect out there, but we've never seen him in red. There's the, some pivotal positions that have to perform for everything that we just said to happen. Rob, you are who doesn't you, who doesn't get who doesn't make it. Rob, you have been a huge proponent, obviously, of Omar Manning. 
to Max's point, we haven't seen him catch a ball yet here. But why? What is it? Is it something you've seen in the film? At, you know, the Juco. What did he do that has made you think and made so many others think? I'm not just pointing this at you. What has made you think that, you know, he's going to be that guy that's going to step in here and be that, that immediate difference maker? So from the film that I've watched on YouTube and whatever else is, I've, I've been able to pull up online, um, his size, his ability to separate right before the catch and his ability to basically get into open space are the three things for me. Um, because he's the kind of guy that hopefully, um, Martinez had a small ability to throw the overthrow the ball last year. Um, and sometimes it was just by inches, but at the same time, Manning was still, will should be able to go up and get those balls. Um, hopefully he's going to be where the DBs who are traditionally smaller than, than these tall wide receivers aren't going to be able to get to for a lot of these catches. And he's got that size. He's got that physicality. That's fair. Dave, is there a position group on offense that you don't think gets it done essentially? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say I don't think they get it done, but if you're asking what I'm concerned about or what could be an issue that holds this team back, it, the offensive line has to perform at a high level this year. I mean, that it just has to happen, right? I mm-hmm. mean, and and that should. There's no excuse for them this year. Uh, third year with Greg Austin, experience up and down the line there. We have had competition at, at all those positions O-line has to perform. If they don't, immediate concerns go off on what the eight games look like. That is not only the perfect transition to the last group, the O-line, and the we even have a, a trivia poll question on that, but I think that's absolutely correct because we have five returning starters. And even with five returning starters, we may have somebody new to the starting lineup yep. with Ben Hart. In fact, we think Ben Hart's going to earn a right tackle spot. We think that... Farniak is going to move to right guard where he's going to be in his natural position, the position that, you know, he should have been playing all this time, right? We think that our center, Jurgens, not only could he be at, you know, a, a, a dynamite center, an all-American type center by the time he leaves here, right? Heck of we, a center. But we think that at least immediately here, all those snap issues, all those things that were hurting us a year ago when he was brand new to the spot, we're not going to have those. We're going to have potentially our first all-conference player at left tackle in Hymas, something we haven't had since 2012. That was our trivia question today. From 1970 to 2001, Nebraska produced a first team, at least one first-team all-conference offense alignment every year from 1970 to 2001. Since 2012, when Spencer Long got it, Nebraska has not had one first-team offense alignment. And the question was, is this is this the year that uh, we're going to have one? 63% people said yes. 36% said no. We have two-thirds of the people thinking that yes, and I'm guessing, you know, it's basically Hymas. Mm-hmm. But the point is, I mean, <laughs> yeah, how it's, it's Hymas. Well, you got to come into the season with some, with some name recognition and everything. But, I mean, Dave, to that point, I mean, if that O-line underperforms, I mean, I, I'm basing so much off of that O-line, and if they don't perform – to your point, I mean, that's that's a disaster, right? Yeah, it would not bode well for a win-loss record. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, you got to win in the trenches in the Big Ten. And, you know, uh, that was an interesting Twitter poll there. I don't think Hymas is probably going mean, to, he'll have to have a great year to actually be all Big Ten. It's not that he isn't a, a heck of a lineman. I think he, he is, and he showed that last year, especially at the end of the season. And he 
very well could be a like a second day NFL draft type guy. I mean, he, he could go second, third round probably, I guess. But there's so many good linemen in the Big Ten uh, with bigger names and, and stronger reputations already. I think it'd be tough for Hymas to break into that top five at the tackle position. Yeah, I mean, this is a offensive lineman league. When you look at schools like Wisconsin and Iowa and Michigan and Penn State and Ohio State, my goodness, I mean, there's a ton of great offensive linemen in this league. It is absolutely 100% crucial that the old line does show up. And I 100% agree that Hymas is our best chance to having an all-conference of any team for a second or third in a long time. And that could happen. It could, and it, and it wouldn't surprise me. I guess more the, the the vein of my question was, I am concerned <laughs> as much as I am happy about how we've recruited the wide receiver position. We've got Cade Warner coming back. Wandell coming back. And even at Wandell coming back, he spent more time at, at running back than he did wide receiver. You know, so 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 for a guy like Wandell to work and a guy like Cade Warner to work. Omar Manning has to work. Xavier Betts has to work. Alante Brown has to work. And we haven't seen any of those guys. I was, you know, I was watching the Chiefs tonight. And, and the thing that, that stood out to me was what made the Chiefs so dangerous, a combination of a few things. One was Mahomes' arm and be able to fit into windows. But, yeah. the, but the second part is the speed at his wide receivers to create windows based on how quickly they could get into their zone spots to stress a defense, to to quote Bob Diaco, or strain, strain a defense. <laughs> and, and I feel like when you've got an Elante Brown and then you've got an Omar Manning or a Xavier Betts in a Wandell Robinson, you could potentially stress a defense with speed and some size mismatches, which we have never had. We, we, we've never had Stanley Morgan at his tallest is six one and bro, I'm not six one and him and I were eye to eye. Love Stanley Morgan gave my son Sully his glove. But anyway, Omar Manning has to be the guy yeah. to, to change anything on the wide receiver position because otherwise it's just a rinse repeat of what we had last year because there's nobody behind Wandell and, and Cade Warner that we could count on and say, this guy's a difference maker. And if there's nobody behind those guys, we've written some serious issues about what we want to do offensively. And Dave, I mean, what Mac has just said is that we have a bunch of guys that haven't played yet. Yeah. Guys that are all four-star in a lot of cases, a lot of four-star dudes and great receivers and great players and everything, but they just haven't played yet. Sevion hasn't played yet. No. And I think they're great fits here. But Dave, are we counting too much on guys that we haven't seen yet? Uh, Well, I wouldn't put it that way because – it's not that they can't be those guys right away. I think they could be, but it's just, it's so much unknown. And, you know, the fact that the offense works so much better when it you can rip the top off that defense, right? And if you don't have an Omar or maybe just a speed guy like Elante Brown or Marcus Fleming really stretching that defense, it doesn't work as well. Um, and so... It's integral into the Frost offense to have all these weapons, right? I mean, to mm-hmm. to Max point about Kansas City, I, I remember I've seen uh, McCole Hardman caught a touchdown, you know, and you like forget about that guy, but then you see like, oh, he had six touchdowns last year, right? It's like Casey has so many weapons, they're just everywhere, right? Yeah. And that's that's really is similar to the Frost offense at UCF, and they use them everywhere too, right? They, everywhere. They, 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 Everyone has everyone has to make a choice on that. Yeah, I hear you, man. It's it's a concern. You just have to be excited that at least it feels like we have the talent 
and we have the body types that fit the offense and what they're trying to achieve. I have a fantasy team, and Kansas City, it's almost not always the the best team to go out and get fantasy players from because they have they are so spread out. They have so many running backs. They have you know Mahomes is a great guy to get obviously, sure, but absolutely. but you know but they have a great tight end. They have three or four wide receivers, different body type wide receivers. Dave, if you were creating a fantasy team off of Nebraska right now, what guy that's not Martinez? Don't pick the quarterback. What other skill player? Who are you picking that you think is going to be? the best fantasy pick out of the skill spots. Yeah, it's Wandell. <laughs> Pretty easy. Other I mean, first. he's going to have the most touches. Yeah. He's going to, especially if you're playing in a um, points per catch league, you're going to take Wandell. He's going to get, you know, I don't know, six, seven catches. He's going to score most often, most versatile. He's on the field more often, as long as he stays healthy. It's Wandell. I 100% agree with you, Dave. I was talking to my nephew, Tony, tonight about this same thing. He's like, well, who do you think gets more touches or uh, more receptions, Omar Manning or Wondell Robinson? And I was like, well, if it's just touches, 100% Wondell. But if it's just receptions, still Wondell. You know, <laughs> like, like, like yards, like he, he, he compared what Omar Manning – would do to what Stanley Morgan did when he was with JD. And I think that's a pretty fair or apt comparison, although I hope those numbers are inflated. But if, if anyone's paid any attention to us on social media, when I say us, I don't mean the Go Big Redcast, although follow us on Twitter and Facebook and, and Nebraska Go Spread. And, and, but um, beyond that, though, <laughs> like Wandell Robinson has kind of become the face of the university. Like yeah, he, he is, it's not Adrian. It's it's not anybody else. It's it's Wandell out there who's who's doing these you know recruiting videos with Oregarst and and making yep. that stuff happen. So like this guy is he's he's featured on our on our social media platform. He was featured as a freshman, guys. You know, in a, in a year that we was a throwaway year, we featured and pushed and hammered on Wandell Robinson. Like that's a big big component of our offense this year. We don't even know yet. Like we haven't seen this guy being used to his best capabilities or the the most optimal way to handle a guy like that. I'm super excited about it. You've got mail. I mail mail. I can't believe I'm gonna be a mailman. What's in the bag? A shark or something? <laughs> All right, time to crack open that mailbag, Honky. Uh, what do we have from our listeners this week? Well, the first class question of the week uh, comes from Dustin Jones via our Go Big Redcast at Gmail inbox. He asked, I see the offense taking a step forward against the conference this year. There is more experience and size everywhere. With that said, the offense only scored 28 points per game last year. With no fluff games on the schedule, what is a realistic expectation on where the offense lands in production as well as where will it rank compared to the rest of the Big Ten? Okay, I'm going to go to our analytics guy, Boomer. And, you know, first off, 28 points a game last year. How does that even stack up to what the rest of the league did? And I guess moving forward, you know, again, you know, what are those expectations, I guess? You know, when we say 28 points a game, that's what we scored. But some of that wasn't even on offense. We scored, I think, 
was it 21 points on uh, South Alabama on defense and special teams. So actually our offensive points per game was actually lower than that by, you know, a couple points when she averaged it out. Uh, 28 points per game, though, uh, puts us at uh, seventh in the Big Ten last year. We were offensively, if you look at, you know, yards per game, we were way better than that. I think we were fourth or fifth, but when it came down to actual scoring, we were far, far worse than that. And that's actually... You know, one of the things you guys whiffed on when you were talking about the importance of offensive stat for next season, and that's going to be that red zone production. Uh, we were 105th in the country last year in that red zone production at, you know, 75%. So that's that number you really want to see improve, you know, for next year to actually show that we're better and improving. Uh, just the teams that were above us last year, um, Michigan was the next one above us, and they were at 31.7%. So you're talking a whole field goal plus you know, better than us to step up. Then Indiana was right about the same as Michigan. Then you've got Wisconsin at 34, Minnesota at 34, Penn State just a little under 36, and Ohio State blew everybody else in the Big Ten out of the water in every offensive category. They were averaging just a, a shave under 47 points a game. So, you know, if you're setting your your, your target at Ohio State, you we've got a ways to go to get to that. But, uh, you know, if you get a field goal or so a game better, you're moving up a couple slots. You're overtaking that Michigan-Indiana area, and you're getting close to competing for those top few slots, the top tier in the Big Ten. So that's what you need to be looking for. So can we make those improvements? Can we get that red zone performance up, both TDs and field goals? So that's the big key. Is that realistic, Boomer, to do that? I would hope so, because I would like to think our kickers aren't going to maul themselves doing God knows what in the offseason <laughs> this year. So that alone, you'd hope, would uh, lead to some extra points and field goals that we're going to be able to make where we felt we had to go for touchdowns last year and failed to convert. I mean, that, that 75% last year was terrible. I mean, that's a god-awful number for red zone percentage. Like I said, that put us on 105th last year. I think there were only two teams worse than us in the Big Ten last year, and Michigan State was one of them, and they were just a shave under us. Um, you've got to do better than that if you want to win games. Uh, Rutgers was below us, and, you know, if you're saying, thank God we're above Rutgers, yeah, that's not a good stat. <laughs> so we were at 28 points at the at the competent place kicker, or at 31? I would think so, at least. So I mean, in, in yeah. 31? If not even higher than that, because you're... Think of how many times we went for it on fourth down last year when we could have no, kicked the field goal. I will not think kicker. about that. Yeah. Well, okay, listen. But <laughs> yeah, there, there was a lot of points we left on the field because we just didn't feel we could kick. But we were just one average kicker away from that number. Exactly. Yeah. I mean that that I mean that's a bare minimum improvement that, quite frankly, we haven't even talked about on the podcast because it's embarrassing that it it, it had to happen. And but we're talking about quarterback play, offensive line play, defensive line play, all this stuff. Kicker, we assume, will be better because it was abysmal last year to the point that none of us has have ever seen that kind of kicker display. Yeah. You know, it, it was absolutely ridiculous. Now, it's still 2020, so I guess it could get worse. I imagine <laughs> he'll kick a ball and somehow a bomb will go off and it'll go through the other opponent's goalpost and we'll deduct two points. I don't know. It's 2020. It could happen. But let's say it doesn't. We just have an average, average Average kicker. I mean, <laughs> like that's three points. So we're at 31 points right there. So how much better do we have to be to, to win, you know, yeah. nine games? Turns out, four points. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I, lo- love, 
that we're talking about football. We we lost Come on. we lost four games a year ago by a by a score or less. So yes, every little point there adds up. I mean, it absolutely does. Well, the next question comes from Sal Vasta, and he said, "What should the QB's touchdown to interception ratio be for a successful season, and what will it more realistically be?" I guess I'm going to go over to Boomer again, our analytics guy. Do you have the answers to what? you know, our ratio has been in the past, and what do you think it should be for a realistically successful season? Well, yeah, I've got some numbers here for you on that. Um, you know, last year was that troublesome season with uh, Adrian Martinez, and just overall, last year we threw 12 touchdowns for nine interceptions. I mean, that's not a great ratio as far as that's not a great recipe for success. I mean, comparing that to other teams last year, you know, Wisconsin had 18 touchdowns for five interceptions, or... You know, Oregon would be another team we'd compare ourselves to, you know, similar kind of offensive philosophy to some degree. They had 32 touchdowns to six interceptions. So, you know, those elite teams, you see a huge touchdown-interception ratio, which is what I think you're looking for. Um, A Scott Frost kind of example, you go back and look at uh, Central Florida 2016. They had uh, 13 touchdowns to uh, nine interceptions, so pretty equivalent to last year. That next season, when they took a huge step up in McKenzie Milton, it was a thirty-seven to nine. So you just see a huge increase in the touchdown ratio is what I think you want to see out of the team this year. All right, yeah, you may still be throwing nine interceptions, but God, if you're throwing thirty-seven touchdowns, that's fine. So, and if you could go back to uh, the twenty eighteen season, even with Nebraska, when we thought a lot of Adrian Martinez, that performance, we talked about how great it was. He still threw ten interceptions, but he had nineteen touchdowns. Again, that's another you know, seven touchdowns, you stretch that out over a whole season, like we talked about, a few points, you know, three, four points on average a game, that puts you into that next level of the Big Ten, so that's what you want to be looking for. So as long as you're kind of getting that range, at least, you know, 19, 20 touchdowns, higher is better, obviously, but keep that interceptions to that single-digit ratio, that's that's really what you want. So you're saying seven and two. (laughs) <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, we'll, we'll take a look at that. 7-2, 8-1, uh-huh. depending on how COVID weighs out. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Obviously, it's COVID. I was, uh, I was listening to, um, I think it was on Sportsmanlike Contact today, and they were having this question. They were talking to a friend of our show, uh, Stephen M. Sipple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Josh and, and Bishop actually had, they were very, like, being very conservative. And they were like, you know, could he have a 12-7 to touchdown to INT ratio? Which, to Boomer's point, that'd be very conservative, uh, even in a, a nine-game scenario. And Sipple's like, oh, no, I mean, maybe 18 to 5, something like that. And I think Steve is right there. I think Sip is mm-hmm. right in the sense that you need to be more, you have to be at least 2 to 1 to, to even say that that's working the Frost offense. You really want to be more 3 to 1 or better. So you got to take care of the ball and you got to score touchdowns. And, you know, I mean, you got nine games. Can you average two touchdowns a game? Yeah. That seems so reasonable, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. I mean, 18 to 5 was Wisconsin last year. It, it, yeah. You should That's be able to manage number. that. I mean, if you're looking for the gold standard, Ohio State was uh, 16 to 1. Well, that is that is good. Yeah, that's yeah. not bad. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, yeah. They they have they have been a competitive program, I will say that, for Ohio State. Rob, just to, <laughs> to be clear there... I mean that's that was the ratio, but it was probably like forty eight to three or something like that. I mean, that's it was right. forty eight to three. Right. Still, that's good. <laughs> yeah, 
I would take that. Understatement of the show. Thank you. I'm glad I can make a contribution tonight. Thank you. I just don't feel like it's going to be that big of a jump to drop a lot of those numbers. I mean, you're, you're talking about you're talking about adding about three to four inches per receiver on average. You know, like those high balls that Adrian was throwing oh, last yeah. year are about chin high this year. Yeah. Well, speaking about quarterbacks, Husker Power ninety two asked us. It was very creative how Ole Miss used two quarterbacks on the field at the same time. Could Nebraska use some of those same packages with Martinez and McCaffrey? Dave, I'm going to ask this to you. And it's not just Martinez and McCaffrey. I think we've talked about this in the last couple shows. You could throw Logan Smothers into that mix, too. I mean, there is no redshirting or anything going on right now. I mean, we've got some athletic quarterbacks, guys, that can play multiple positions. You know, could you at times this year see... Obviously, more than one guy on the field at the same time, more than one quarterback. Absolutely. I mean, I even saw it at Monday Night Football. You know, Mahomes lines up outside, and and they're in kind of a wildcat, but then, you know, they, they flip it back to Mahomes. But in, in that instance, you could have have both Luke and Adrian out there, and you really don't know who's going to be the actual quarterback, and both of them have the athletic ability to play other positions. So, yeah, it could happen, sure. No, I agree. I, I think, you know, that's the thing that comes with having athleticism at the position is you have guys that can play multiple roles and they can line up in running back spots or wide receiver spots, whatever it takes. Or, or, or even, just as importantly, the same kind of quarterback, despite how far down the depth chart you go, which was Sure, yeah. It, you're, you're not just a wildcat guy. Yeah, the backup can come like, in and, all, and be a legit QB. All our quarterbacks are of a similar mold at this point. Mac, we had this question about Adrian and, and Luke, and and how do you keep Luke happy, not only this year, but but beyond? And we have this redshirt situation where Adrian potentially could come back for three more years, right? This could be his, essentially his sophomore year, which is crazy, or junior, right? I mean, he, he's got three years of eligibility left, right? Because this doesn't count. It's, it's kind of insane how long he could potentially be here. But if that was the case... That would be a situation where Adrian continues to beat out the competition, but he's not good enough to yeah. enter the NFL right. draft, right? right? I mean, yeah. that's that's the spot we don't want to be in. We want Adrian to excel really well, and in in 14 or 15 months, this guy is looking at the NFL and wanting to start his career, or we have someone like Luke or Logan Smothers who have surpassed him and has taken over that spot. Yeah, uh, Either of those two options are fine by me. And I say that as a complete uh, fan of Adrian and hope he does well. But it's mostly – I'm a Husker fan. And I feel like if we're doing a good job of recruiting, this will shake out. Obviously, Adrian being here for four more years is a kind of a horrible sign, really, of of quarterback recruiting. And and I don't want to lose McCaffrey either. You know, you hope you get the best out of both of them. And and, – but – Luke has – there's no reason the, – the thing with this year is we're going to play as hard as we can all year long. And that will probably require more than one quarterback. It just sure. probably will. We're going to have to put our quarterbacks in precarious situations in which they may get hurt and then next guy up. We need to win this year. So if it shakes out that it ends up being Adrian all year, I'm all for it. If if – if Luke takes over mid-year, that's fine. Whatever Smothers do does is icing on top. But 
it's got to be team first. It's got to be leadership first. And it's got to be somebody who's willing to take the reins and make plays when we need them. And think about this, guys. Think how good Adrian's going to have to play this year to not get rumblings from the non-existent crowd that won't even be in Memorial Stadium. <laughs> but think, about, think how good he's going to have to play to get no kind of groundswell of let's get the backup quarterback in there. I, mean, I do not envy this kid his position, but it is his position. So yeah. take it and run. We have two more questions out of the mailbag uh, from Billy R., said, with the lack of spring ball, what are the odds of early enrollees at the skill positions to significantly contribute? Rob, I'll start with you there. You know, there's no spring ball. They didn't get any of those practices there. I mean, do you think that there's going to be a challenge for those early guys to come in and and contribute at a lot of those skill spots, the running back, wide receiver, tight end, everything? Maybe later in the season. Um, it's a complicated offense, and it's not something you can just walk into and, and contribute to immediately. Maybe there might be a player to here or there that they could come in and Wandell last year, for yeah, example. and and so I think it's going to take some of these guys um, that have already been involved in the offense contributing greatly. I would say, Honk, that if anything positive has come out of this delayed start to the season, is more seven-on-seven type work with Adrian and his wide receivers, right? That's the the max point earlier. That's our biggest question mark from an experience factor. And even if we did have spring ball, we wouldn't have had someone like Omar Manning here. And so actually having these couple of extra months, I think from a timing perspective, a um, a relationship building perspective, we're better off starting two months later. Um, So hopefully some of those guys can start producing right away well last question comes from brewmaster bill can you suggest to your loyal listeners to only drink beers from nebraska or the state they call home a follow-up he goes since you can't swing a dead cat in colorado without hitting a microbrewery maybe colorado listeners can try to support the smaller breweries in the state that's what i'm going to try to do so dave you i don't think you have any issues with that you would you would certainly support the local breweries and the smaller local breweries in colorado right Yes, absolutely. Um, I almost exclusively drink uh, Colorado beer when I can. Uh, just this weekend, I went to a couple different breweries, uh, New Elevation Brewery out in Golden, which is an amazing spot, and then uh, Beerstadt, which is a great German brewery in Rhino, my neighborhood, that um, has great German beers. It's Oktoberfest season, right? So I had a nice Marzen. So I support this idea fully, Bill. Rob, you're obviously you live up there in Greeley. You're in northern Colorado. I mean, I can't imagine you would have any issue, uh, you know, supporting the local state and the and the local economy, the microbreweries there too. I'm I'm, I'm assuming you're all over that. No, because secretly Greeley actually has two of the best breweries in all of Colorado and Weldworks and Wiley Roots. Um, depending on what you're looking for, Weldworks has um, nationally known New England style IPAs along with their barrel aged stouts. Then you have Wiley Roots Brewing, which is known for its barrel aged sours as well as their fruit um, blended beers. They have a, a great series right now called the Fruit Lady that sells out. Literally last weekend, they sold out over 500 cases of a beer in less than 20 minutes once they went on sale online. Um, so there's some of the premier beers in all of Colorado, and I happen to live about a half a mile from both those places. So uh, quite frankly, Bill, I'm on your side, brother. Boomer, any local alcohol of any kind that uh, you know gets you excited there? 
Well, local alcohol is kind of my thing, but, uh, well, alcohol is kind of my thing, but, uh, <laughs> I, I'm typically more of a cocktail drinker than I am beer, but, uh, there's, there's a lot of local breweries in Nebraska. If you're, if you want to hit the local scene, there's tons of good stuff here in Nebraska. A lot of good ones in Lincoln, you know, whether it's Zipline or White Elm, you got your choice of those. And distilleries, Lincoln's just starting to get one, I believe, coming up soon, but there's several in Omaha. There's a few others scattered around the state. Support local stuff if you get the chance, people, whether it's a, a local brewery distillery or, a, you know, your local bar that does different things. You know, we're big fans of the other room here in Lincoln, if you like a fun little kind of speakeasy sort of thing. Branch out, see what's out there, try it out, and just enjoy. You know, we got the go, the, the, the you know, you know, breadcast on the rock segment. If you want to try a few drinks we've thrown together ourselves over the years based on random cocktails we found and adapted, just uh, just find something that works for you and enjoy it. Also, uh, support your local libraries. Uh, the Gear <laughs> Library happens to be my favorite one. They've, they've recently uh, updated their HVAC system, so uh, you can you can read periodicals, um, different reference materials, and complete uh, climate control. And you can read all about uh, alcohol drinks, yeah. Dave, I think we have sounded like, especially the last few minutes, we have sounded like we have definitely uh, experienced the alcohol and the and the local you know drinks and everything. So, how do we get out of this? <laughs> oh, I can get you out of here. Huh? Don't worry. <laughs> Please do, dude. <laughs> Let's get out of here with some parting shots. You know what? I'm going to start with uh, Redcast Rob. Parting shot. I don't really have any friends anymore. You guys want to leave? (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's a good one. Boomer. As any loyal Redcast listeners know, you know, college football is one of our passions. Australian rules football is up there. But our our third big passion is obviously pro wrestling. And I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, the family of uh, Joseph Laurinaitis, uh, better known to a lot of fans as a road warrior animal. He passed away uh, this last week. Uh, He was also the father of a noted... Ohio State linebacker James Laurinaitis, who's still in the NFL. You know, feel for his family and feel for everybody on it. James is no longer in the NFL. I think he retired. Oh, did he retire finally? Okay, yeah. But either way, yeah, I think a lot of people remember him at Ohio State and, you know, stand out there. He, I think he won the Nagurski Trophy, I think, as linebacker there, did he? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he was a great player and, yeah, should be familiar to a lot of fans of, uh, fans of the sport. All right. Boomer, good one there. Uh, Mac, what do you got for me? I don't have a whole heck of a lot, Dave. I, I was just sitting over here pondering what to say, and all I could think of was the glee I have that every every show that we have is one show closer to actually being able to cover college football. I'm like, it's it, this was a fun show because we didn't have to talk about any nonsense, and I, I guess I, I'm just thankful for that. So for my uh, Thanksgiving podcast, I'm thankful for college football. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Hockey, what do you got? Does anyone know whatever happened to Sir Yacht? Shipwrecked. Yeah, he's selling some shirts, I'm sure, or something. I don't know. Well, I, I want to give, first off, congrats to Gordo. Alex Gordon retires after playing for the KC Royals organization for like, what, 14, 15 years, whatever it was. I mean, the guy, he leaves as a World Series champion, um, a three-time All-Star, seven-time Gold Glove Award winner. He's also been an outstanding alumni. His name's adorned on the... Uh, Alex Gordon training complex at Haymarket Park. Dave, you're a baseball guy. What does Alex Gordon mean to the Royals? What does he mean to baseball, Major League Baseball? Consummate professional, uh, someone who um, was doing willing to do anything to uh, make the Major Leagues. He switched positions 
Um, someone who contributed to the Royals for 14 years. He's probably a top 10 Royal potentially of all time. I mean, part of that is that he had one of the biggest hits in Royals history with that home run in game one of the World Series that got him into extra innings. Um, it's an iconic image in Royals history. And uh, for Nebraska, um, you know, he won the uh, Golden Spikes Award, I believe. He was the number one collegiate player his senior year, um, and, you know, just a, a big legacy to Nebraska baseball because of getting to the World Series. So, uh, A little bit of Redcast trivia. Uh, which member of the Redcast was at Kauffman Stadium to witness Alex Gordon's first hit against, uh, was it Daisuke Matsuzaka or something like that? I'm going to guess you. Me. Yeah, it was me, guys. Okay. <laughs> it was me. I bought a I bought a blue uh, Kansas City Royals hat, and it worked. <laughs> it fit right on my head. So, And Alex had his first hit. Not a big home run, but a single. And who was Dice K pitching for? Uh, the Red Sox at the time. All right. Know, he's pitching Very for good. now. Yeah. I, but, but seriously, you were at Kaufman I was the there. first? Yeah, I was there. We missed his first couple games. I went down with a buddy, uh, Camplin, who you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, German Marler. And, um, yeah, they invited me down. I was like, I don't know. I don't want to go to a baseball game. I'm I'm busy trying to chase girls, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it, that, it, was, it was still a great time. But that's how long he's been playing pro baseball, is that you were... I was worried about all the kisses I was going to get. <laughs> so many kisses in Kansas City. My last... Parting shots, and these parting shots have gone way off the rails. Um, our next show is going to be 150, Dave. 135 when, for McGuire. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, um, Boomer, I mean, what does 150 shows mean to you? Well, that's a lot of shows and a, uh, a lot of time we could have spent doing productive things, but I enjoyed doing this a heck of a lot more, so... They don't, they don't call him the best color man in the industry for nothing, folks. If you divided 12 by 150, like I wonder what that number would be. All right. It's not good. So this wasn't our best of those 150 shows, but you know what? It if was we, a show. But if you like us, give us a five-star rating. Please do. And oh. also, just yeah. at the same time, leave us a nice note. Yeah, don't forget something. to smash that like button and like and subscribe. So Dave, back to you. <laughs> All right, let's get out of here, guys. Uh, let's call that a Go Big Redcast. Go Big Red! GBR.